Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Janelli, and I have a preview card. I'm Andrew Weissel, and I also have a preview card. I'm Carrie Barkett, and I also also have a preview card. It's very convenient for all of us because all our preview card is the same preview card. Because we're going what? to have a special, yeah, it's true, Jay. We're going to have a special episode of the Vorthos cast this Wednesday, April 11th, where we will talk about our exclusive Dominaria preview card. It's very cool, and you're going to want to listen, or else. Man, I can't wait to listen to this future podcast that we definitely have not recorded and prepared already. So we're recording this on uh, the night before I fly out to Seattle for GP Seattle, which is kind of awkward because when y'all are listening, I will be back from GP Seattle um, and very sleepy. Um, and I will still be in Seattle. Yeah, we're things are going to get interesting in, in the uh, future of the Vorthos cast. So if you learn interesting things this weekend, uh, sorry, we'll cover them next week. <laughs> okay, so um, in not our preview card news, it is preview season, and we've had, I mean, honestly, by the time we, by the time you listen to this, it'll have been a week, but we've had three days of previews now. So let's start with the other three uh, legendary sorceries that we haven't talked about yet. I think there's one more that's going to be coming out sometime. And if you read the leaked um, release notes, you know what it is. But we're not going to talk about that here. Don't tell anyone what it is. It's going to be sweet. I can't wait to see the art and hopefully flavor text. All right. (laughs) Let's go. So the first one we want to talk about is um, chronologically... uh, is Jaya's Immolating Inferno. Now, this is a scene from uh, the novel The Shattered Alliance, which until recently was a $40 used book when I bought it about a year and a half ago, two years ago. And in the last six months, it's been an $80 used book. So many of you who have joined the fandom more recently may not have actually read this scene, Hopefully, when the Ice Age ebooks came out about a month ago now, is that right? It feels yeah. like it. Yeah, uh, you've had a chance to to start going through them. Uh, but this scene is from the end of the Shattered Alliance. So what's happened is at the end of the novel, the Inter- the Eternal Ice, uh, Lashrak cuts off Limdul's hand and takes him to Chandelar. The hand is found by Jaya. Uh, and it has Lim, uh, Limdul's predecessor, Mersil's essence, in, contained in this ring there. It's a little bit of a long story. It's kind of like his horcrux or his, uh, his uh, phylactery, whatever you want to call it. And over the next 20 years, she starts to get possessed by Mersil's mind, which everyone calls Limdul because no one at that time knows who Marisol is except for Joda. So it's a little bit confusing because they call him both Limdul and Marisol throughout the novel. But anyway, she gets possessed by this evil dude. Joda, meanwhile, has uh, his magic mirror has been imbued with the power to ignite a spark by uh, Freilise, who believed that Joda was a planeswalker and was trying to get back at him kind of for all the put downs uh he he gives planeswalkers over time he in order to save jaya's life he recognizes that jaya has the potential to be a planeswalker and so he smashes the mirror into her face once marisol had taken direct control um he just smashes it right in her face and her spark ignites and the two of them are transported to the blind eternities where she has this like infern raging inferno where she purges Mersel's essence from herself. And there's this cool scene where you can, uh, where they describe like Mersel's shadow, like creeping up her body. And the implication is if he gets like to her head, uh, he'll have taken full control of her. And so she purges him with this giant raging blast. Wait, 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 wait. wait. So why didn't he just start at her head? I I don't know. (laughs) I think uh, he had already taken control. Major flaw. So he was already in control. He was already in control of Jaya when she was a mortal mage, but when she became a planeswalker, it was too much power. He had to, like, regain his grip, and so Jaya won out. That was how I read it, anyway. 
So what you actually see in the art is Jaya, uh, hair, hair ablaze. <laughs> yeah, exploding, flames everywhere. And then in front of her, you see uh, Joda, who has been designed basically to look a lot like Urza recently with a bit of a color inversion. Uh, so that's Jaya's immolating inferno. That was when Jaya's spark ignited. Afterwards, Joda, I mean, if you've listened to this before, I've talked about Joda a whole bunch, so I'm not going to get into it too much. But afterwards, uh, Joda actually apologizes to Jaya for uh, stealing her humanity from her because he feels so strongly that old walkers, like, they always lost touch and lost their humanity and just became these mad gods. Uh, and we we never heard of Jaya again after that until uh, till this set, till Dominaria. Yeah. Technically. Technically. Some planeswalkers ignite when they kill all their friends. Some planeswalkers ignite when they've escaped the grips of Phyrexia, and some just get a mirror smashed over their head. <laughs> hey, if you've, if you've ever had a serious glass injury, the silica dust gets in your wound, it's very traumatic. So can can I tell you both, like, this scene is amazing because, first of all, Jaya is like 50 feet tall in this scene. Uh, <laughs> Mersil has uh, used magic to, to make her, like, bigger. So she's like a giant looming over the city. And Joda just is, like, flying. He didn't run up. He's, like, flying like Superman to smash the mirror into her, her face. It's uh, It's a very entertaining scene. Alright, so Karn's Temporal Sundering. So this next one is, this one's easier to explain because we've already talked about it a bit. So this one is um, Phyrexians invaded uh, Talaria and killed a whole bunch of people, including Joda. And Karn, who is built as a time travel probe, goes and uses Urza's time machine to go back in time and save her. But the stresses on the time machine prove to be too much. And it explodes and creates all these time rifts all over. So this Karn's temporal sundering shows like time fracturing on the island. And it shows, you know, pockets of fast time, pockets of slow time where the fire is still going. It's a good figurative um, depiction of broken time. Like this is a card art that isn't a literal depiction of an event, but is kind of a metaphor for what is happening. And most of them are like that. And I, I really actually like that approach a lot better than trying to frame some of these scenes. And, and literally. I, I do want to interject that this whole cycle, because um, it's a cycle, is all illustrated by Noah Bradley, who A, has done an incredible job on these cards, B, has done an incredible job on all his cards ever, and C, is is really built his magic career off of the more abstract um, especially when it comes to composition and also like centering in the frames. Like that's that's a thing he does so much better than anybody else. Um, all these artworks are just stunning, which is why I can't wait to see the last one. The one flavor note I want to mention is you can see Grim Monolith, the, the card which you might be familiar with if you play Commander more so than anything else. Uh, but you can see Grim Monolith in the background, and that is the the hideout i guess you want to say or the fortress of the these phyrexians that got caught in a fast time bubble so they had built up this huge dark fortress in a pit uh and that's where the grim monolith comes from so i thought that was a really nice flavor touch very cool yogmoth's vile offering is another very cool card that people did not expect so this one uh this goes back way in time to an old inquest magazine artwork showing Yogmoth, like and people were never really sure if that was meant to depict Yogmoth or not well we just got our answer it's Yogmoth because <laughs> in this artwork it shows um a scene from the middle middle to end of the novel apocalypse where both gerard and urza have been lured into the the core of phyrexia the ninth sphere where Yogmoth's power is greatest, and uh, Yogmoth pits them in a battle to the death against one another. Uh, and if Gerard wins, Yogmoth has promised to return Hannah to him. And if Urza wins, he's been promised like all the knowledge of the Thran or something like that. Urza had just kind of gotten seduced by Phyrexia throughout the course of his invasion of the plane, so 
he kind of went along more willingly than Gerard. Gerard was always just in it to get Hannah back. But yeah, let's um, talk about how great of a hero Urza is one more time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he literally murders his team that he brought to destroy Phyrexia and then goes and willingly signs up with Yogmoth. I think some of that is like Yogmoth's magic affecting it, but it, he, he, it wouldn't have been so easy if he wasn't already enthralled with Phyrexia's methods. So this art is cool because it's a less literal depiction, but in uh, Yagmoth's core or in his heart is uh, floating Hannah. Um, and if you, I think it's the, the artwork for Jilt, something like that, where uh, Gerard realizes because uh, Yagmoth is speaking through Hannah's mouth, along with the mouths of all these other little avatars he has everywhere, he realizes that that's not the real Hannah and it's Yogmoth trying to trick him. So he stabs it and basically runs, <laughs> uh, runs out a portal back into the stronghold. And, uh, but Yogmoth, because he had won and beaten Urza, had already upgraded him so that he was a, a physical match for uh, Krovax. And so when he leaves, he's able to beat Krovax. But what the scene shows is he decapitated Urza and uh, these weapons are these soul rending weapons so when it cuts you it cuts your soul as well so all that's left of uh urza is the head that's why he can't regrow anything else is because of this magic weapon that was used on him and the other question you usually get is if urza's a planeswalker why didn't he just like destroy gerard right away and uh, that's because yogmoth in this place has more power than a planeswalker and he restricts uh urza's abilities yeah to his it's... natural abilities Part of the reason Yagmoth was never really depicted is at at this point in his rule over Frexia, he basically is Frexia. Um, yeah. Like like he he gets talked about as a god, and it's really hard to deny that that is a correct description of what he's become. Um. Like in in this, like the card Frexian Arena isn't. A building. It's Yogmoth. Like the the arena is Yogmoth. The this core of Frexia is Yogmoth. Like there's there's no delineation between where you know Yogmoth doesn't end and Frexia begins somewhere. They just kind of blend into into each other. So like I can't even think of. There's got to be something in some media somewhere where someone's been depicted this way, but like I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But it's just like he just like is the world. He is the metaphysics of Frexia. At least in the core, he exactly. is. Exactly. Yeah, right. Right. The, his as as you get there's a, there's a description in the novel where somewhere around like the fourth sphere is where his influence lay, and it's like it's more metaphysical once you get to the fourth sphere. Uh, whereas like the fifth, sixth, uh, I'm sorry, with the first through like fourth and fifth are more like phys actual physical world stuff. Right. And then the close, farther down yeah, the, you get the, the more metaphysical. The surface of Frexy is kind of this regular artificial horror world, but it gets weirder and weirder as you go deeper and deeper. It's, it's disturbing. Like if they, if they ever set like a Metroidvania game in Frexia, I think that would be really cool. And I, ima I imagine, like, if, if anyone who's played uh, Axiom Verge uh, for, like, every platform now, uh, I get a really strong Axiom Verge vibe from this art. Um, it pulls from a lot of those same kind of visual elements that the, the Frexians use in the same kind of creepy atmosphere. It's just disturbing. Everything about Frexia is disturbing. That's the point. It's great. Let's move on to Rona, Scion of Gix. This is a card I really, really like because I like the... I, it's not that I like the the Gixians or the Mishraists, and they actually called them Mishraists in uh, a, a one of the Access Magic videos, but I like the idea of these people who want to turn themselves into cyborgs because they've read these stories of Mishra and the, um, the priests of Gix, uh, the, the Soldevi Adnates, which are much less well known, but basically they found Phyrexian stuff underneath this, yeah. uh, there's, Ice Age city there's of There's a Soldev. lot of cool 
Uh, so, so there's a card, Priest of Yogmoth, um, from Antiquities, I think, that lets you it you tap it and sack an artifact and add black mana equal to that artifact CMC. And then there was a card, Soldevi Adnate. Where were they in Alliances? I think so. Uh, I think so. Um, the so the the Soldev was near the Caves of Koilos, where very near the ruins of Halcyon, the Thran capital. So where all this major Frexian stuff had gone down in the past. Um, and Soldev had found a bunch of ancient Frexian tech and reawakened it. And it didn't go so well because Frexians. But, uh, and that's actually that actually happened right before Jaya's Immolating Inferno because Marcel had taken over the Adnates and used Joda's blood because he was a relative of the brothers to activate the machines. Yeah, so Soldevi Adnate was a card that came out later, and that was functionally very similar to um, Priest of Yogmoth, uh, which which was you you I think people underestimate the way uh, reprints and functional reprints and similar cards can help tell magic story, and so like just by having that one similar card, you get the idea that the uh, Soldev was messing around in very dangerous evil Frexian technology and the same vibe is from Rona um, so Rona is very cool she has like what appears to be a, a Mishra's bobble uh, in with, her hand with the mask she of has, Yogmoth on it yeah yeah, and then she has a uh, what looks to be a, a like a modern version of the Staff of Ages that she's holding and it's just this cool very atmospheric scene that's she's done she's got a little red robot eye too excellently yeah it just looks really cool. I just wanted to talk about it real quick. I'm I'm really excited for this Mishraist faction, uh, who are probably like the Shadow Talarians who are doing all the things they're the actual Talaria is forbidden to do. Yeah, we because we talked about last week, one of the or previous episodes, about the the five different uh campuses for the Talarian right. academies. And it, they kinda we're very non-specific about the shadow campus, um, and you know we talked about ideas for it. But what if, like people on Dominaria, know Frexians are the bad guys? But there's always someone who thinks the evil guys are kind of sexy, <laughs> and like we're doing cool things, and, and you know maybe we can do this cool thing too. And and 360 years later, all they've got are these big rusted out hulks. So it like they don't they didn't see the true horror of it, right? also ignorant of how bad things got and oh maybe we can do better um but like that's really taboo so maybe the shadow campus is these these uh mishraites um and these disciples of gix who was a frexian praetor maybe they just don't want people knowing what they're doing so they stay hidden or maybe they're like hey we found some frexian ruins come under the cover of darkness use concealment spells and we'll go study it together Maybe that's what the Shadow Campus is about. I don't know yet. I'm very excited to find out now because it's like so mysterious. I think we're on to something with this one at least. So let's move on to the next card, which is Deragaz Reincarnated. Why is he important? So 20,000 years ago, when the Numena cast down the um, primeval dragons, and we've talked about this a bunch, uh, Deragaz was the key to them being reborn during the Phyrexian invasion because he can reincarnate. So we learn that Deragaz thinks the first primeval was dead, and he's right, but what he doesn't realize is that he is the reincarnation of that first primeval, and so he's like their rebirth. And so, like, I can't believe I never thought of Deragaz being a character that could return again. I really like the flavor of his mechanics, though. I know uh, Andrew's a big Mel, but this is one where I'm, I'm, I'm all in where he has basically suspend but with egg counters instead of time counters to represent his reincarnation into a new egg <laughs> new form yeah there was there was a great cycle of spells from uh the time spiral block i forget which of the sets they were in but um they had suspend and when you cast them when they resolved instead of going to your graveyard they went and resuspended themselves so um and you know and they all had card names referenced to 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 cycles and repeating and stuff. So it would be like every three turns that spell would be cast. Daragaz has that same mechanic, just with a different counter and a different flavor, uh, which is neat. 
So moving on, uh, the next one is Territorial Allosaurus, or as I like to call it, Super Mario World. It's a dinosaur eating mushrooms, so it's like Yoshi <laughs> stomping on Goombas. Um, <laughs> but, oh my god, this card is so cool. So in 1995, uh, Ice Age was released, and it had this card, Pygmy Allosaurus. And it was kind of this kind of a little blue-green dinosaur with dark stripes. Uh, it was just a, it was a rare, and it was a 2-2 two, two for 3 with Swamp Walk, because that's what passed for rare in those days. You know, and it was just like a one-off dinosaur. The Prior to Ixalan, it was the only dinosaur creature in Magic printed with the dinosaur type. Um, they all got changed to lizard beasts later down the road, which is stupid. So then in 2006, Cold Snap is released um, as the kind of finishing of the ice age block which wasn't wasn't designed to be a block so ice age and alliances had the same story but then homelands was released in between them which was wonky so they were like in 2006 as a supplemental set they made cold snap to tell the rest of the story that had been told and kind of harken back to those mechanics and make it feel like it was a three set block they had a card there called allosaurus riders who was a an elf riding an allosaurus which is a awesome a reference back to Pygmy Allosaurus. The dinosaur in that art also has this kind of blue-green skin with dark stripes and a spiky back. Territorial Allosaurus now in Dominaria in 2018. If you look at the art, it is a blue-green Allosaurus with dark stripes and spikes down its back. It's the same dinosaur. Um, the same dinosaur yep. design for... And the flavor text even alludes yeah, to it. The, the flavor text reads, A Living Remnant of the Ice Age. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, I, I tweeted about this. You know, life finds a way to not change so much sometimes. <laughs> and and this is one of those cards, I, I, I think there's, there's a struggle with... If you haven't experienced a set on Dominare before, the nostalgia doesn't matter to you really. So, yep. like, that part might not matter for this card. But then this card is also just a dinosaur, and dinosaurs are cool. It's a 5-5 five, five for 4 mana that fights something if you kick it. Like, the card itself, it, it, it's an individually cool card. So if you don't care about Dominaria's history, it's still a cool card for you. But then if you do care about Dominaria's history, you get this kind of cool visual throwback to these two previous cards. Um, and and to note that history is uh, Yavamaya, when it was still part of Teresia Air, right. uh, had a number of dinosaurs like these Allosauruses. They had uh, these intelligent apes. And then after the Ice Age ended, uh, a whole bunch of elves migrated from Fintorn to Yavamaya and kind of became the dominant race in Yavamaya. And uh, they tamed these Allosauruses. And then the next one we want to talk about is Slin Voda, the Rising Deep. Oh, yeah. On um, this one, this is one of mine, too. Uh, so you get to hear me be super, super duper excited for things because this is a legendary Leviathan, the first one in magic history. Um, I love sea monsters. Uh, I have a Thassa, God of the Sea commander deck that's built all around sea monsters. Um, and... Quest for Ula's Temple and then later Whelming Wave started this sea monster tradition of grouping Krakens, Leviathans, Octopuses, and Serpents together. That's kind of the, the big four for sea monsters. Um, and what was cool to me is that we had three of them on mono blue legendary creatures. Uh, we had Tanawa from, you see the Mirage Revisions, I think it was Mirage, as a legendary serpent. We got Lorthos in Zendikar as the legendary octopus. We got Tromocratus as the mono-blue kraken in Born of the Gods? Somewhere in the Theros block. But we never had a Leviathan. And this is finally it. Slin Voda. Um, which is just a cool thing. Voda is a Slavic word for water. It's the origin of the Vodalians. In, in general, I think this set's going to be weird like Kamigawa in that we're going to get a lot of legends that just don't have any lore behind them, which is kind of awkward for fourth hosts. Or not until the art book. Yeah, well, I, I'm hoping the Dominaria art book gives at least a blurb about every single legendary creature in this set. We'll see. Yeah. 
I am I am also very excited to have another Ula's tribal creature because they are great. Well, and this one adds Merfolk finally, um, which matters because they're a uh, a mechanical thing in standard right now. But they can finally swim through these tidal waves that these sea monsters make. So the next card we've gotten, uh, we'll actually talk about two of them at once, is the new Tefiri card and Oath of Tefiri. Yeah. The return of Tefiri as a planeswalker after we last saw him in Time Spiral sacrificing his spark to Menderift, and then in Future Sight, the last we knew of was he was walking the land of Dominaria as a mortal, along with our previous preview um, we saw last week, which was Opt. Jorio has gifted him the crystal of community popular demand to get his spark back, and <laughs> once he eats that crystal, he will get his spark back. <laughs> but seriously, we don't know where the crystal has come from. We do know that Tefiri is a planeswalker in this set, and we do know through Oath of Tefiri, which the oaths are kind of a bonus story spotlight, or yeah. a light version of those, but we do know that he ends up joining the Gatewatch in some um, capacity. And then next up, we have Karn Sayana Verza. The last we saw of Karn, he was hanging out on Mirrodin and then promptly leaving Mirrodin. Um, Elspeth recounts this in The Lost Confession, but Karn has departed to try to find other planes that he might have infected. It's a very strong card, and it was previewed by none other than Jay and Ellie on oh, GatheringMagic.com. Jay and Ellie, he does a podcast ne- called I've The Borthos Cast. <laughs> yeah, well, it was actually previewed by the WPN, apparently, <laughs> <laughs> but it is what it is. Uh, <laughs> I have the, the sexier artwork in mind, <laughs> so. But yeah. we did get to see or hear from Karn, at least, in the Dominaria trailer. Yeah, number that one. was cool. And he doesn't really state his ambitions here other than keep the plane from being nuked. That's noble goals enough. Yeah, we are we are one third of the way into Dominaria's story and haven't seen him yet, so Yeah, we've I'm seen curious neither Tafiri or Karn. Yeah. So I'm I'm expecting stories featuring them soon and hopefully we'll we'll have a lot more to say about both of these characters then. Yeah, if you really want to read up on Karn's backstory, Jay published an article over on Gathering Magic last week all about the gritty details. So definitely Which check that out. Which also happens to be my preview. Yeah. yeah. We've also thank talked you, about them. Thank him. you for the plug. Yeah, we've also talked about them in previous episodes. So if you've been listening, um, you're probably at least comfortable enough with uh, his basic backstory as well. So the next card we want to talk about is Weatherlight, which is awesome. I think it's the card everyone, ex- ever since we saw Vehicles, yep. it's the card everyone has been waiting for. Yep. Because the very first thing when we saw Vehicles was, you know what would be a cool vehicle? The Weatherlight. <laughs> yeah, it's when the release notes leaked and we- the we- there wasn't a Weatherlight vehicle card on them, I was like, oh no, did they forget to do a Weatherlight vehicle? <laughs> because like... <laughs> People are not going to forgive Wizards if we go back to Dominaria after, and we know that the Weatherlight's coming back and they don't give us a Weatherlight card. Um, but it turns out it's not complicated at all, uh, which is why it's not in the document for complicated cards. It's Yeah, it's not, it's not something someone will be confused about how it works. What I like about it is that it mirrors... I mean, we've talked about the Weatherlight a lot, but what I like about the card is that it mirrors the original Skyship Weatherlight. But it doesn't in suck that it, like the it, original card. It, the original ca- the original right. Weatherlight card sucks. It's so bad. What I like about this new card is that it's the same flavor, but it actually does stuff. So... It mirrors it. It it is. It costs four mana. It literally mirrors the main art of the original. So whether lights facing the opposite direction as it did before, but it's still the same like cloudscape. Uh, but it and it digs for heroes and artifacts for you, which is I thought was really cool. When it deals combat damage to a player, you look at the top five cards of your library, reveal a historic card, put it into your hand. So it yeah it still it still gets you the important things the heroic figures and stories and Dominaria's past but in a way that makes it not a terrible card because you're smashing face for four in the air. Um, what I didn't put together until literally just this moment as I'm looking at 
um, a list of these preview cards is that that triggered ability is the exact effect of the card board the weatherlight, which has that yeah. effect for one and board the weatherlight's another one we should probably talk about real quick, which is uh, it shows Liliana and uh, um, Gideon uh, beef slab beef slab right before like the weatherlight has appeared before them. And it's just like looming large and impressive. And Jaya's just standing there on deck. Like, Joyra. yeah, that me, <laughs> me. I'm sorry, Joyra. Too many, Too many J names. So it's pretty awesome. So the next preview card we want to talk about is Slimefoot the Stowaway. Uh, the best card Captain in Toad. Dominaria. Um, because who cares about the fairy? Who cares about Joyra? Who cares about New Wellerlight? Who cares about Gatewatch? We got a legendary fungus dude thing. We did it, everybody. Kind of like a janitor. He cleans up a bunch of trash on the weather light, and he, but he just kind of sprouts. So this is actually a moment in, in this past week's story where we get to see Slimefoot's birth. So Malimo gave some seeds to Joyra to regrow the wooden parts of the weather light. And um, in the story, Tiana mentions that um, occasionally the wood will just sprout out like growths and stuff. Um, and she notices this kind of dark moldy spot. Uh, we learned that that's going to become Slimefoot um, and his his little band of saplings. What's interesting is that if Slimefoot is a Thalid, how the hell did Thalids get off Sarpedia? Because that's a kind of way out in the middle of the ocean. And it's also like an extinction level event. Well, but the Thalids were fine. They were they were what they were the the thralls and the thalons were the two tribes that came out of the whole fallen empire well, story doing fine. That's true. No, I meant that it's like an extinction level event for everyone else. But I guess they only wiped out the elves because of uh, because the elves were trying to eat them. Yes, which is so maybe not. Not, not nice to do to other sapient species. Um, but uh, we know the Acacians, the the white human tribe, fled. Sarpedia to Terrasier. Um and the day we're recording this there's um what did April just rip text out of? What game? Battle, Battle Mage, Mage yeah. or one of them. Um anyway, thank you April King for for digging into some of this really obscure hidden hard to find lore stuff from some of these old video games. There's a passage about the Quiron elves on um Corondor. Yeah, Corondor um, in the White Woods. Yeah, and it, it talks about that they, they had learned, you know, from their history fighting the Thalids to be really aggressive and defensive and protect their territory, which, and it talks about them having migrated from Terrasier, which means if they came from Terrasier and fought Thalids, they probably came from Havenwood on Sarpedia first. So any, any spores that might have been attached to either Acacians or Havenwood Elves as they fled Sarpedia could have been spread to um, other continents and then across all of Dominaria, sprouting Thalids across the whole plain. And we know uh, because of territorial Allosaur, because we know the Allosaur is in Yavamaya, right. we know this has happened. Right. So it's just interesting to me that uh, that they're kind of everywhere now. And it's I, I love world building, and I think it's fun to think about how those kinds of things happen. So that's my best guess. If you want to know how Thalids got everywhere else, there's nothing confirmed, but uh, my best guess is that dried spores kind of um, in, in the real world, fungal spores can remain dormant for years if they get dry enough and conditions are right. And then uh, reactivate when they get damp and moist and cool and stuff. So it's very possible that that's how Thalids got off Sarpedia. Okay, so next we're gonna do a fast flavor gems section. Yep. Because uh, these are these are cool uh, cards, but they probably don't need us to talk about them for five to ten minutes. So number one, Baird, steward of New Argive, is just cool because he references the union of uh, the Keldorans and the Balduvians, and he uh, has elements of both. So he has the Keldoran plate armor. But he has like the Balduvian like blonde hair. He has the Balduvian like furred cape and a round shield where the um, Keldorans didn't usually have round shields. Two-headed giant is from Forus, 
which is to the southeast. I think of... it's pronounced four eyes. Oh, four eyes. There we go. Oh, God. Yeah, four eyes. Four eyes makes so much more sense. Uh, and this has been another episode of Teaching Jay Hell to Pronounce Fantasy Words. <laughs> when you read it forever, like, this is the first time I'm talking about half these names out loud. No, no, no. I, I, it's it's not shade at you, Jay. It's, it's, I, I was a Garuker for years before someone I said it's Garuk. Garrick. And I was like, oh. Garuk forever. <laughs> uh, so Muldratha, the grave tide is really cool. Cause it's, uh, she's basically the daughter of Multani, the spirit elemental of, um, of Yavamaya. Uh, he transplanted a five mile section of Yavamaya to Urborg. And, uh, when he, he left a, a new elemental avatar spawned from this mix of Yavamaya and Urborg. And so that's who Muldrotha is. Song of Freilis is just I mean, it's Freya Lise. There's not really anything to talk about, but the, the card is gorgeous and her eye patch is hidden, which is kind of interesting. I think it's actually missing. Missing, maybe. Because she doesn't um, have a strap around her head, which she would if she had well, the eye patch. So she was, well, if it's her, it's she is very young in that picture. Yeah. Uh, the Marari conjecture is funny because it's basically us. It's uh, a <laughs> bunch of, <laughs> it's some researchers doing some crazy blackboard conspiracy. Uh, it's just a really cool piece of artwork. Chainer's Torment is, uh, I mean, it's it's a reference to the novel, and it shows Chainer with um, the Marari uh, above him and the power all around, and all these people being mutated by the Marari around him. I just thought it was a very cool Literal piece. nightmares coming to life and ripping his mind apart. Exactly. Uh, Lyra Dawnbringer is the, uh, not really the heir to uh, Rhea Dawnbringer, but she's like, so... I asked Kelly Diggs about this on Twitter, and he said uh, that the Dawnbringers are essentially the the leaders of the Order of Dawn, and it is named for Rhea, but Lyra is from Sarah's realm originally, uh, so that's just a cool bit of flavor there. She's one of the original survivor Sarahs. of of a plane that doesn't exist anymore, which is really cool. Shalai, Voice of Plenty. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. She seems to be a new card in the Voice of cycle which is a bunch of um, Saren angels who just have voice of and then something else in their name. Uh, they, they added one in Time Spiral, and now we've got voice of plenty. All right, well, let's get into uh, Return to Dominaria, episode four. Uh, so let's just do a, a brief overview. This one, basically, it flashes back to Tiana's past and then comes down into the present and what was going on with Tiana and the rebuild of the Weatherlight while Joyra was away. Uh, so let's get into it. One of the most interesting things I found was that the angels are prayed into existence. So like when a group of people all pray for a guardian angel, one is created in that Sarah's Realm-esque place, uh, which was a kind of neat detail there. But Tiana was born late, and no one really understood why, and they are all kind of suspicious. And then... She sees a, a a mural of Gerard that looks like Gerard's Triumph, the card art, and immediately notices the weatherlight and feels a connection there. And then um, they take her to her purpose, which she learns she thinks she's going to be like a battle angel. But then she learns she's a guardian angel for a particularly complicated irrigation system. <laughs> and I just I, I lost it. I cracked up. But thankfully, she does her job flawlessly, right? Yeah, because by the time she gets to it, to the great machine, as they call it, it's already destroyed. So she's just like purposeless. But what's interesting is because she was born late, she was late and the thing was already destroyed, which freed her up to work on the weatherlight, which is a very interesting uh, coincidence. I wonder if that's why she was born late and there was something else going on behind the scenes there. But we also learned something else about uh, what the Church of Sarah believes, and I think Carrie wants to talk about that one. Yeah, Tiana is told during the Battle Angel sequence that um, Sarah had sacrificed herself to heal Benalia, which we've detailed in prior podcasts what exactly happened with Sarah's fate and the Saren Cathedral. But for newer fans who are reading this for the first time, they might actually believe this, 
but this is part of the appeal of Dominaria is conflating some of these myths and um, legends that we've heard into stories greater than their own. For example, Sarah Disciple, which we also covered, believing that the ancestor was another defined form of Sarah, but it's complicated to explain to people what exactly is going on here and what the truth is, but seeing these in-world retellings of the story is interesting because it does show us that um, they are flawed in their storytelling. So It's great for the history theme, honestly, and I think it um, it is... What's the best way to put this? I think it is. It makes Domin- oh, for me. It makes Dominaria feel lived in. It makes it feel like these are real yeah, cultures, exactly. Because they screw up history and mythology just like humans do, um, which so, is great when it's intentional, like right. This. Um, yeah. It's so. It, so it's really cool for world building, but it, yeah, like Carrie said, it has this awkward interaction with the fan base because Sarah did not sacrifice herself to renew Benalia. She was very depressed after Faraz, her 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 boo died um and she just kind of let herself get murdered by a planeswalking thug and it's not very glamorous but no but she showed like not divinity very... in that moment and inspired the guy who created the cathedral yeah, she, of sarah her 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 beauty and grace inspires a monk which is how the church of sarah got started there but like Good thing they made up a new story because the truth is kind of eh. Not worth retelling to an angel to be a motivational part. Exactly. So that does bring up something that I wanted to mention real quick, which is, you know, like, if that was all that happened, she just died and it was really depressing. Why does the Church of Sarah faith work? Like, why are angels prayed into existence? Um, like, why does that actually work? Uh, so what what divine power is behind it? Is it just because that's the belief system that's what's happening, which seems to be the case on some planes? Like, the beliefs, the power of the belief system is what fuels the reality of the belief system? I don't know. But I thought that was just interesting. So maybe Sarah did leave something of herself behind. So um, the question of how this magic all works, I think I might actually have an answer for. What you got? If you go back to the old Homelands comics, which is where Sarah's story is told and, and this whole defeat happens, um, this thug tries to mug her and she's all, no, I don't want this contest. Hello again, Faraz. And then the caption says, Sarah lets her white mana glide back into the land. Hmm. So... Did she imbue Benalia, the land itself, with her magical power? You know, I think, uh, and that's why the angels were are born in the Cathedral of Sarah. I think that works. I like it. Because remember, real quick, to jump back to Amon Ket, when Cat God dies, what was her name? Oketra. When she dies, her power still works because right. she's like the white mana ley line right. incarnate, basically. So I like that a lot. I think that's cool. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's a good clue. So you know what? And I almost want to go back on laughing at the Banalian take because if... Maybe it's true. Yeah. So what she may not have... Like, I'm sure the Banalian story is more she directly sacrificed herself to save Banalia and heal Banalia. Yeah. But maybe it's just the fact that Banalia has been able to recover and been able to last so long um, because Sarah died millennia ago um maybe the only reason benali's been able to stick around and the church's magic has been able to sustain itself so long is that sarah's power has been imbued in the land itself so so indirectly um over time she has allowed benalia to thrive when it maybe would have just become another fallen empire at some point i like it yeah we're gonna pin kelly biggs on this i think this is right (laughs) We'll we'll corner him and uh, report back. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Andrew, did you want to talk about your amazing tinfoil conspiracy? Uh, yeah, because my name is on our podcast notes, so that should be me to talk about it. So, so <laughs> Tiana, there we go. She talks about in this story how she just kind of knows how to like. 
she's like, oh, I'm not an artificer. And Arvad's like, dude, have you looked at like all the crap you've been doing in the weather light? Are you fixing this thing better than anybody else with more passion than anybody else? She's like, oh, yeah, well, just interacting with the Power Stone, it just kind of comes to me. I just kind of know how to fix all this stuff. Well, that's mm-hmm. super weird um, because as far as we know, Power Stones don't talk to people. Um, and they don't have psychic connections with people. And Tiana's had this weird connection with this power stone this whole time. But we do know a weird thing about this power stone's history because the collapse of Sarah's realm into this power stone was told on an iron-bound scroll toted around by Tamio back on Innistrad. This is the second time I've talked about this in <laughs> relation to the Dominaria story so far. Um, we know Emrakul rewrote part of um, the that the story of Sarah Realms' collapse, uh, which now resides in this Power Stone. Um, and we know we know for sure that she rewrote it so that Tamio would take it out, uh, cast a spell with it, and release a ton, uh, you know, a plane's worth of energy so that Emrakul could trap herself in the moon. And we still don't know why. That's super weird. But we know the Eldrazi are super weird and mysterious. And for Emrakul, time is kind of a wonky thing that doesn't really apply all the time. And um, Eldrazi work in mysterious ways. They don't always fully manifest on planes. So is the, you know, if if Emrakul's tied to Innistrad, um, anchored there in the way that she was on Zendikar, part of her might still be in the Blind Eternities. It's possible maybe she can still influence other things. We don't know. But... Did she write notes into the history of Sarah's realm? <laughs> like, did, did she basically put the Weatherlight's blueprints in there to be transmitted to Tiana at this moment? I Like, it's this is in tinfoil hat territory, and I, I don't <laughs> think this is correct, but on the long shot that some this is part of the pl- the plan for the future of Emrakul's story and tying you know multiversal threads together on the off chance that this is correct i wanted to mention that tiana might have this mysterious connection with the sarah's realm power stone because Emrakul wrote the collapse of sarah's realm to act this way at this <laughs> moment um i'm not saying i'm not saying that's what's happening but it's a it would Listen, be... I'm the guy. I'm the guy who's been championing like a character who hasn't appeared in a story in 20 years as being a major villain. So I'm not one to judge, really. <laughs> hey, look, look, we 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 have crazy. Like, this isn't Lim Duel's the Raven Man types of of craziness. Um, except we have evidence to back all that up, and uh, we're still pretty sure we're right. Um, but like, the potential for that to be true is there, and I think it would be a really cool thing if that was true. Um, I'm not sure it is. I'm sure we're going to get an explanation of this connection at some point in the story. And it's probably, it's most likely not going to be Emrakul. But if it's Emrakul, I just want to put it on record that I said it here. Um, <laughs> so I have receipts later. Just in case. Like, I'm not banking right. on it. We uh, <laughs> we need to, to close out. So let's talk about the last few things we found interesting. Like our uh, The one I found. The one I, one I found interesting was the there were Kavu on Bogarden, uh, which means they've spread all over the plain. Uh, they were originally from Yavimaya. They got transplanted with uh, that section of uh, Yavimaya that became Muldrotha uh, to Urborg, and now we have seen them in both Llanowar and Bogarden. So they're they're everywhere now. And it makes sense for them to be here because Bogarden's an island right next to Urborg. Yeah, yeah. If if they could swim even a little bit, they could probably literally across a bay. And uh, Arvad's curse and the power stone. So what's cool is uh, the moment they turned on the Dominaria power stone. I'm sorry, the Sarah's realm power stone. Arvad immediately like homed in on it. I wonder if it's because of uh, just the Sarah's realm piece, and because he's devout, like it it attracted him, or if like the other Sengir vampires can sense it. I, mm. I I think it's an interesting bit of lore and it's it's very neat because of the history 
of Baron Sengir and Sarah on Olgrotha. I didn't even think that about I, that either. Yeah, I wonder if like when Sarah imbued her power on the plane, as you as you suggested, maybe she built in protections against Sengir. Uh, I don't know, but I thought it was just a very cool connection. It's kind of neat that Arvad has like, as long as he's near the weatherlight, his like bloodthirst is gone, and he can, you know, he can he can be in direct sunlight without dying. Yeah, I thought it was just very cool. All right, and then the last one is uh, something that was really interesting and ties into her innate connection with the weatherlight is Tiana being the weatherlight's guardian angel, which like this big uh phoenix comes to attack the weatherlight which happens if you're in bogarden first of all it's just like a fiery hellhole um but uh tiana like the thought of the weatherlight being destroyed angers her so much she has this like holy power where she just fells the phoenix in like one blow basically and pushes it into the ocean I, I thought that was very interesting as well, because there's clearly way more going on here than than we think. All thanks to Emrakul. <laughs> All thanks to Emrakul. <laughs> so again, I want to bring up the, the idea that Tiana is someone reincarnated, because Sarah Angels, one of the histories of Sarah Angels, or one of the metaphysical explanations for them, is that they're born from the souls of departed like noble warriors. Um, and so I wonder, I, I'd mentioned Selenia before, uh, I wonder if it could be maybe Hannah or the Weatherlight itself, because the Weatherlight became an intelligent thinking creature and sacrificed itself. Uh, it got burned out by the white mana from the Null Moon when they tried to kill Yogmoth. So I don't know, there are a few candidates, but whatever the answer is, I'm really interested in finding out. Martha Wells is doing like a really good job with these stories and Tiana and Arvad are both very interesting characters after reading this story. I'm very interested to see where their their plot goes. Yeah, I'm going to have a lot of thoughts. Are we at final thoughts moment time? Yeah, yeah fine, cool. go for it. Uh, so final thought, I'm very interested in Tiana's arc from kind of a lit crit standpoint. Um, if you don't know, I have a degree in film studies and creative writing, so lit crit's kind of my, my jam. So the, she's she's this angel born for a purpose who doesn't get to do that purpose so kind of has to find her own purpose it's it's a very magic's never really had an angel main character like this almost ever so it's very interesting to me to have her so integrated into the story and i'm very interested to see where her arc goes by the end because i'll talk about that at in a future podcast at some point yeah, the only other angel who played this larger role in a story would be Feather, which hopefully we'll see in the fall. And Carrie, last words. Tiana's gotta be Limdul reincarnated. <laughs> Why would you do that to me, Carrie? Why? The only explanation is Emrakul would reincarnate Limdul through the power stone into Tiana. Oh, God. We're going to get questions about this. I know we're going to get questions about this. <laughs> All right. And that's the Vorthos cast.